Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. Today, we're going to be meeting with three people who are locals in the north coast of California in Mendocino County. And they're going to be talking to us about the Grassroots Institute. I'm going to read from the Grassroots Institute website for your benefit. Progressive solutions for the common good is, in, is confronting our deteriorating political, economic, and environmental systems. The Grassroots Institute looks at the systemic problems created by wealthy corporate elites instituting public policies benefiting their own good rather than the common good. The Grassroots Institute also promotes citizen-based solutions that are creating a vibrant future. The GRI, Grassroots Institute, offers two free study guides that you're going to want to take a look at. One of our grassroots solutions and one corporate power course, the other for our building the economy for the common good course. Using these study guides to educate concerned citizens on corporations, democracy, and building an economy for our common good. The solutions to our sustainable futures are already at work in our communities. We just have to recognize them, bring them together, and support them. You're going to hear more of a description from Jim Tarbell in just a few moments. Before that, let's have our guests introduce themselves. Jim, would you give us a little background on yourself? Then we'll go to Peter, then Carrie, and then we're going to have you give us a more in-depth description of the Grassroots Institute. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Richard. It's great to be here with you on uh, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Um, you know, I've uh, been researching and writing about corporations and corporate power and grassroots solutions for, for 50 years, written a couple of books on the topic. I um, uh, co-published uh, with my wife and, and friends the uh, magazine Ridge Review here on the coast uh, for about 20 years, which touched on uh, a lot of issues around corporate power. Um, we also, I also co-founded the radio program Corporations and Democracy on KZYX in 1998. 2005, I started um, editing. I founded a publication called uh, Justice Rising, Grassroots Solutions to Corporate Power for uh, the Nonprofit Alliance for Democracy in Massachusetts. And now in, in 2015, we began this Grassroots Institute uh, uh, where we once again you know, kind of continue this whole idea of uh, what local communities can do uh, about corporate power in their in their communities. And as as uh, as we'll see, there's some big questions about that right now in Fort Bragg. But I'll let my compatriots introduce themselves. Thank you, Jim. Peter, give us a little bio on yourself, please. Thank you, Richard. Um, Peter McNamee, um, I have uh, been living on and off uh, in Northern uh, California on the North Coast since uh, I was 16 years old. Um, I started out in Willits, uh, California, going to high school there. And uh, I went on to uh, uh, pursue a career in government and public service, which went on for about 35 years. Uh, and then I retired. And uh, in my government work, I uh, did a lot of work on uh, policy issues facing the state of California. I worked for the Little Hoover Commission, which is a think tank the state employs to examine state programs and make recommendations to the governor and the legislature on ways to improve efficiency and economy in the state. I was also the executive director for the employment training plan panel during the Gray Davis administration. The governor appointed me to that position. I managed a portfolio of about a quarter of a billion dollars in incumbent worker training programs in the state of California. Uh, I also served in local government um, after I uh, graduated from college at UC Davis. Um, I went on to uh, 
be elected as the county clerk and recorder. I served for eight years in that capacity, running the county's elections, managing the county recorder's office. So I have a career of uh, working uh, in the public interest and uh, organizing. Um, one of my deepest passions is voter participation. And I had, uh, as a county clerk and recorder, I was lucky enough to indulge that for eight years as the registrar of voters in Yolo County. Uh, I came to the Institute um, about two years ago uh, after I retired and, and moved to the coast here in Fort Bragg and found an uh, institution that I thought was uh, a magnificent way to uh, stimulate and to uh, energize public uh, involvement in not only local government, but in the economic sector and in the environmental sector. So I've made it my, my passion. <laughs> and I'm happy to join Carrie and, and Jim in that. Thank you, Peter. Uh, Carrie, would you kindly introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you very much for having us. Uh, my name is Carrie Durkee, and uh, my professional career was of, uh, had two arms. I taught PE at uh, Mills College for 10 years, mostly uh, any kind of uh, movement activity and um, young uh, child education. And then I was at the city of San Francisco as a a uh, gardener, gardener supervisor, everything to do with urban forestry in the Department of Public Works. Um, I, I, was, I was there for 21 years. And then since moving to Mendocino County in 2006, I had uh, more time to engage in political action. I had been um, involved before that, but this, at this point I was able to give much more time so I focused on citizen engagement and working with several initiatives in the county. Uh, prop, the state proposition 37 for GMO foods, uh, the state measure 59, which was around um, move to amend and uh, corporate power. Measure F, very, very similar in the county and then measure S which is banning fracking and claiming our right to clean water. Um, I also worked with Move to Amend for six years and ran the program here in the county with other people, with other colleagues, Margaret Coster in particular. Uh, after registering for voters in Phoenix, Arizona in 2020, I coordinated local uh, postcard writing campaigns for several of the crit critical uh, campaigns across the country. And then in 2015, started working with Jim Tarbell, Michael St. John, Margaret Coster, and Lillian Cartwright to develop the Grassroots Institute. Um, I've taught workshops and uh, created ways to empower local people to engage in, to engage in change to, to uh, make a better planet. Uh, help. Thank you, Carrie. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Jim, for the introductions. Uh, Jim, would you kindly now elaborate on the Grassroots Institute for everyone? Oh, sure, Richard. I'd be happy to do that. As Carrie mentioned, uh, it was founded in 2015, and, and only now, seven or eight years later, we're formalizing, and you may hear more about this later, kind of formalizing our structure. And... Um, I decided that really what we are, we're a civic education and action collaborative, is what I call it. And uh, we're kind of a, a participant governed, staff directed, and board advised uh, operation. Uh, as uh, Carrie said, we started it uh, with our cohorts that we were teaching classes at Mendocino College around uh, grassroots solutions in corporate power. And um, we did that at Fort Bragg and Ukiah and Willis. So we co we've covered the whole county doing that. And, uh, and then we followed that up with our, with our program we called Building Economy for the Common Good in Mendocino County, where we had a countywide collaboration to identify all the institutions in the county that were trying to solve some of our systemic 
problems in our economic system and our political system and in our environmental system. And then, then we went from there, as Terry says, we went to uh, the elections 2020, where we spent a year looking at the elections. And now we're working on uh, eight different working groups. And I think we'll have time to maybe talk about four of those today. Um, the first one we want to talk about, though, is our focus on grassroots and solutions in corporate power and, uh, and the current situation at the uh, Fort Bragg Mill site, where, of course, there's a, a very well-funded corporation using the power, power that corporations have been given over the last 200 years to take over the mill site property and control the destiny of that of a oceanfront in Fort Bragg without uh, really any public participation and much to in the opposition of the city and uh, most of the residents of the Mendocino Coast. Jim, before we talk more about this corporation's attempt to take over the mill site, please tell us what the mill site is and what it represents and where it is and how it relates to the city and the North Coast. Sure. Well, there's, there's a long history here. Uh, the Redwoods, of course, were discovered here in the Northern California coast in the mid-1850s. In 1865, uh, uh, kind of a scion of Michigan and Wisconsin big timber money uh, came and uh, consolidated many, many uh, small lumber companies into one big lumber company called the Union Lumber Company because they brought all those small companies together. And uh, he uh, took over the land that had been, a part, you know, Pomo land, had been part of the Mendocino Reservation and uh, in 1885, and established uh, the mill site and uh, established the city of Fort Bragg. He was the first mayor of Fort Bragg. And um, from there, they created railroads. And, and they uh, really were one of the biggest lumber companies in, uh, in the country. And eventually, in the 1960s, it was bought by um, Boise Cascade. And then uh, Boise Cascade sold it to Georgia Pacific, and it was there was so much property. It was a big operation that it caused uh, Georgia Pacific to be uh, broken up by the Federal Trade Commission into Louisiana Pacific and Georgia Pacific. And and that mill site, the mill site in, in Fort Bragg, which is mainly almost all the all the coastline in Fort Bragg, uh, was in operation until two thousand and two when Georgia Pacific kind of left town in a hurry after claiming that they were never going to leave Fort Bragg. And it's been emptied and, uh, and people have been dealing, dealing with it ever since. They've left quite a toxic mess uh, full of dioxins and they're under a, a court mandate to, uh, to clean that site up. Jim, let me ask you, how much property right along the Pacific Ocean is this mill site that Georgia Pacific abandoned? It was about uh, 300 acres uh, when they, a little over 300 acres. Uh, the city has been able to uh, gain ownership of about a hundred, uh, hundred foot strip and actually some other property, about 30 acres right along the coastline since then. And, and the rest of it has been owned by uh, Georgia Pacific. They've been cleaning it up ever since then. So we're talking about, approximately 300 acres right on the Pacific Ocean, in between the Pacific Ocean and the city of Fort Bragg and the north coast of California. Is that correct? That's correct. So it's, it's, a, it's a piece of property that could make a huge impact on the, on the residents and the lifestyle of the people who live there. Yeah, I, I believe it's the biggest um, undeveloped property within uh, city limits uh, anywhere on the California coast. So what can you tell us about what is presently happening with that piece and why the Grassroots Institute feels the need to jump in and help the local residents in some way? Okay, well, well, when they when they started the Union Lumber Company, they also started a small railroad um, called Mendocino Railways as a separate uh, corporation. And that uh, had a train that went from uh, Fort Bragg to Willits, which is about 40 miles inland, up over the coastal range, and took all the lumber out of here from the coast over and connected with the railways going up and down. Uh, 
um, uh, Highway 101. <laughs> Since then, uh, in a, that railway kind of came to an end after a couple of uh, tunnel collapses uh, in the 18, in the, I think it was the 1980s and 1990s. And it, it has been taken over by a tourist railroad. And it only runs about four miles now out of Fort Bragg, out to the tunnel and back. It's not really a railroad at all anymore. But they have claimed the rights of railroads. You know, railroads controlled all of our politics for years and, and gave railroads the rights to do almost anything. And this, uh, the owners, it's called, um, we call it the Hart brothers, uh, Chris and Mike Hart, and their investors are claiming uh, all the rights of a commercial railroad and that they don't really have to follow any regulation. And that's one of the biggest concerns that maybe they won't clean up the mill site. Maybe they won't follow any zoning rules. They'll do whatever they want out there on the mill site. So if I understand you, what you're saying is that a railroad owned by these gentlemen, the Hart brothers, that used to run from Fort Bragg to Willits has not run from Fort Bragg to Willits since the 1980s or 1990s, 30 or 40 years. It has not run, but since then has run for three or four miles and no further that this same railroad is now claiming that they have railroad rights the same way a regular railroad would have. Is that correct? Right. And they claimed, you know, they used to have a track that went out over the, over to the pier where they loaded the lumber. And they're claiming that since, since they had tracks there, you know, a hundred years ago, that they have a right to control that land. And they use <coughs> their ability as a public utility, railroads are a public utility, the right as a public utility to use eminent domain to essentially take that uh, property from Georgia Pacific. And in the last, you know, in the last month or two, this has happened. Now, are they attempting to take over the land by eminent domain, or have they already taken over the land by eminent domain? They sued Georgia Pacific um, using eminent domain to claim the property. And pretty much just before Thanksgiving, Georgia Pacific, which is owned, I should say, by the Koch brothers, uh, and the Koch brothers could be very influential in what's going on here, um, they... Uh, they, I guess, Georgia Pacific just gave up on the lawsuit, said, OK, we're quitting. We're not going to do this anymore. We're going to hand the property over to you. They call it ceding the property to the skunk train. That was just, yeah, first of November, first part of November. Now, there are rumors abounding that the city of Fort Bragg itself is looking into or has looked into that transfer of the property from the Georgia Pacific to the Hart brothers. Is there accuracy to that rumor? And it, has the city, in fact, taken a lawsuit against them? Yeah, the, the city has started a lawsuit claiming that they're not a railroad, that it's a, you know, a, a fallacious claim, and that they don't really have rights to the eminent domain and the, and the rights to take over this property. And, and the Grassroots Institute is very supportive of that in our efforts. Um, and what can you tell us, what can you tell us, or any one of you, Peter or Carrie, uh, excuse me for focusing so much on Jim, any of the, any of you, Peter, Carrie, please jump right in. What can any of you tell us about the rumors that local people on the North Coast are hearing that the Hart brothers are considering putting some kind of a garbage burning furnace on the mill site? <laughs> well, it, it, I don't know, Carrie, Peter, have anything to say about this, but that is one of the businesses that the Hart brothers do. They have this thing called Sierra Energy Company, where they burn waste to produce energy. And it's a, you know, it's a pretty toxic operation. And it wouldn't be at all surprising since, you know, they have hinted that they are beyond regulation, that they can put something like that out there on the mill site. Or, you know, they people have been looking for years for a liquid uh, uh, LPG liquid propane gas terminal for ships to go in and out of. I mean, I don't know if that's a possibility, but it could be anything uh, that they're doing. And they're certainly, since they're in the business, they promote this all around the world that they, they're in that business. And, uh, and it's not out of the question that they would try to put one out there on the mill side. Are you aware of the rumors that are also going around that they're planning to bring garbage 
from all around the state, particularly Northern California, to the mill site in order to burn it? Well, that, I mean, that's one of the things they want to do. They, they're trying to get this huge uh, grant from the federal government to uh, clean up the tunnels and connect back with Willits so they can, in fact, bring waste in here to their site and um, you know, produce electricity and burn garbage here. And, you know, this happened in the, it used to be that the, the mill had a, what they called the jet engine that produced electricity from all the wood waste. But after the mill closed, they kept doing it and they imported garbage into here and burned it in the, in the incinerators and created huge amounts of dioxin and was sued by the, um, by the government about uh, for destroying the air quality and uh, left piles of dioxins all over the mill site that just left a toxic mess. What what do any of the three of you know about the stories we hear that the owners of the mill site when it was operating gave the workers bags of sawdust to take home to put in their gardens as a way of getting rid of the sawdust on the mill site and it turns out that that sawdust had dioxins and they were poisoning their own gardens. Do you know anything about those rumors? Yeah, well, it wasn't really sawdust they were giving them. It was the stuff they were taking out of the chimneys that had the dioxin in it that they said was a plant amendment. And they didn't just give it to the workers. They said anybody in the city who wants this good soil or this good compost type of waste can come and get it and take it in your truck and put it in your garden. So they spread it all over the city of Fort Bragg, all over the coast. The soccer field in Mendocino has all, has that soil on it. Do, uh, do we know of any epidemiological studies indicating uh, a sequelae from that distribution of dioxin to local citizens? I'm not sure what sequelae means, but... Uh, well, the, the results. What happens when you put dioxin in all the gardens in a town? Do people get cancer? Yeah, uh, well, they certainly, they certainly would get cancer, that's for sure. It's probably the most lethal chemical uh, known. Uh, the Department of Toxic Substance Control is in, um, you know, is overseeing the cleanup of the mill site. And I know that when this all came up, that people started calling them and they will go out and check people's gardens and see if, in fact, there are dioxins in their garden. And they went, did go down and check uh, the soccer field in Mendocino, and it did not have any dioxin. It was only for the years that they were burning garbage, it was, which was like, oh, 2002 to 2005 or something, or 2004. And then they just quit that operation altogether. Uh, Carrie and Peter, before we move on to the next topic that is addressed by the Grassroots Institute, is there anything further you'd like to add about the Millsite project? No, I'm happy with what Jim has said. Thank you very much. Uh, I just uh, commenting about the uh, energy uh, plant that was on the mill site um, during the years um, when Georgia Pacific was operating. This this goes back to the uh, Enron period and is is linked back into that. Um, the uh, the purpose of the facility was to uh, process uh, wood that was not profitable for Georgia Pacific to uh, uh, sell to anybody else and dispose of it through this incinerating process that also generated electricity. But uh, one of the uh, one of the things that came out of that was that uh, there wasn't enough uh, wood product uh, as the mills started to shut down to keep the generators going, but uh, the mill actually had contracts to produce uh, electricity um, that they had to fulfill. So what they started to do, as Jim alluded to, was they bought salvage wood from uh, places like San Francisco in the Bay Area, the Sacramento area, pretty much everywhere that they could get salvage wood, they brought it up. Now this wood was from burnt buildings, um, from uh, manufacturing plants that were using really uh, dangerous, uh, uh, poisonous, toxic uh, chemicals, and the wood was treated with that. So as they burned it, um, a lot of the potash that was generated uh, from in the in the generation process uh, is what's the source of the dioxin and uh, other types of toxic chemicals. 
that that were generated, and they they produced massive amounts of that. But they had a problem, which was what to dispose of this ash. And as you uh, mentioned, Richard, um, one of the ways that they disposed of it was just to tell people, "Hey, this is good potash, which is an amendment to soil." Um, and uh, they dumped it wherever anybody would take it. So uh, it, it is a, a problem that goes back now for decades, um, and uh, it still hasn't been resolved. Thank you. Uh, Carrie, I, I see that the, uh, the Grassroots Institute's subgroup called the Climate Crisis Group has been active in getting cities and the county itself of Mendocino uh, to move towards solar power. Uh, what, what can you uh, uh, tell us about that, please? Sure, be happy to. Um, at the end of uh, 2020, we were uh, we had all been really focused on the national political scene, and uh, we uh, recycled our are uh, thinking a little bit and tried to focus on some some other issues besides the the disaster that had <laughs> occurred up to that point. Um, so anyway, many of us uh, gathered around the idea of trying to do something for climate, and there was a lot of energy to to do some work for, towards climate mitigation. And um, there were about. Uh, about 10 people in the group and we wanted to do something that, that came out of our group in terms of the idea. We also wanted it to be a local action within the county. And we decided that we uh, would like to do something to um, move the government towards climate mitigation. So, um, we started by targeting <clears throat> the city of Fort Bragg primarily and the county, the Board of Supervisors. And we started getting some traction with the board uh, in terms of what to do uh, for, uh, for the climate. So the, the strategy um, turned out to be to engage with the supervisors uh, and the local politicians at, at the city level early on. So uh, actually, thanks to Jim and Peter, we invited uh, Dan Jurdy and then later John Haschek uh, at, at the board level. And um, they had some ideas too about how to proceed and they uh, created a resolution and the resolution was to put $2 million from the American Rescue Act <clears throat> funds, the national funding, to into the uh, county government to uh, put photovoltaics on uh, public buildings and also create battery storage. To uh, the, That's one item. And then the other one is to... Uh, uh, put in electric vehicle chargers all over the county and to electrify the fleet for the uh, bus buses for the MTA. So it turns out that actually the MTA was already moving in that direction. And as of today, they have six electric buses that are, that are uh, just about to, to uh, go into operation. So what, what I want to say is that, that uh, there was a lot of energy. Uh, there was a lot of good energy in the group. The each person in the group brought them the the best of themselves to the group, and we met about every two weeks and uh, just continued to um, let let the if, like we had a focus, and then as things changed, we would we would try to go with it and the, the real benefit of this particular action was that we engaged the uh, politicians early and they claimed ownership of the idea and took it actually further than we would have we would have even 
imagined ourselves. So we can look forward to vehicles owned by the county of Mendocino to be electrified within a reasonable period of time? Yes. Um, Peter has more information on this, but the, they, the, they have a contract that they're negotiating now with Enterprise uh, Rental, and they're going to lease vehicles, uh, electric vehicles from Enterprise. Thank you. Peter, you want to weigh in on that before we move on? Sure. Um, uh, I would just amplify on some of what Carrie has already talked about. Um, some of the uh, uh, accomplishments that we've achieved so far, just in, the, in, a, in a matter of a few months, um, have have been. <coughs> excuse me. Um, that, as as uh, Carrie said, two million dollars of funds have been set aside by the county to reduce the county's carbon emissions to net zero. Um, and uh, there was a, uh, uh, the Board of Supervisors uh, asked a consultant firm, an energy consulting firm, uh, Wildan is the name of the firm, to prepare an assessment of the county's capacity to uh, reduce its carbon emissions, but also to reduce its energy usage and to switch to alternative clean energy. So uh, a number, that report was uh, brought to the Board of Supervisors the first uh, week in December, I believe. And the board took a number of actions uh, that are already having some concrete impacts on the county. And I'll just sort of talk about them briefly. Um, first of all, the county uh, is installing solar uh, panels on the county library and libraries and buildings and the county museum. Uh, along with battery backup, so that during uh, power outages, uh, when PG&E's grid fall, fails, uh, the community's residents can go to those locations and recharge their uh, phones and their computers and those types of devices so that they can stay in touch um, with the outside world. Um, the uh, county is uh, uh, converting uh, to a uh, electric fleet, uh, uh, the Department of General Services, as Carrie mentioned, is uh, negotiating a contract with Enterprise to immediately begin supplying electric vehicles and hybrid vehicles to the county and swapping out its fossil fuel vehicles uh, so that uh, the county's uh, fossil fuel emissions from its fleet, which is 40% of the total county's uh, emissions come from its fleet. So this is a big change and reduces reducing carbon. And also at the same time, over the next uh, 30 years, uh, taking these actions will reduce uh, county costs so that there will be a net income to the, to the county of Mendocino of over $3 million. Uh, so it's reducing energy, cutting uh, carbon emissions, and returning, uh, cutting the costs to the consumers and the taxpayers of the county of Mendocino. Uh, as as uh, Kerry also mentioned, uh, the Mendocino Transit Authority uh, is purchasing electric buses, which are already on the streets or being put on the streets as we speak. Um, there is also uh, been action by uh, the Mendocino County uh, Council of Governments um, to create a renewable energy network which would have the role of coordinating uh, all the cities and county and special districts in the county in terms of increasing the use of solar energy as an alternative uh, to uh, fossil-based uh, uh, grid energy. Uh, and the county has committed to purchase 100% um, uh, renewable energy, non-fossil fuel energy for its operations beginning this year. So uh, in a matter of about five months, six months, uh, there's been a major change in the culture of the operation of the county uh, government in Mendocino. And, and I credit, um, as Kerry talked about, a lot of this came from a synergy that came together between local residents working through work group in the uh, uh, Grassroots Institute and local elected officials meeting with them and asking the question, how can we come together to accomplish something significant and real for our county in a reasonable time frame? 
Um, and that's one of the things that excites me about the Grassroots Institute and makes me want to participate in it is that it's, it really is a grassroots organization where the energy and the drive of the organization comes from the participants. It's not some kind of an organization that has a dogmatic ideology that it tries to articulate and impress upon others. It comes out of the work of the residents of Mendocino County going directly to elected officials, to businesses, um, and, uh, and to civic organizations uh, to work with them. So it's, it's a wonderful organization, and, and I encourage uh, residents of the county to, to join in in that effort at every opportunity they can. I think they'll find it very rewarding. Given the nature of the various problems facing citizens on the North Coast, uh, your words are very important because this is a time for citizens to get involved uh, or we will not have the lifestyle that we presently have. I'm going to talk about another major issue facing uh, the North Coast uh, population, and I'd like the three of you to respond and talk to us about what the Grassroots Institute is doing about this uh, problem. And the problem is as follows. Word has it that there's pressure on local homeowners to evict local uh, residents from their homes so that they can turn the homes into Airbnb or VR, so overnight rentals. There's also word going around that major corporations, one of them by the name of Picasa, has been buying up local homes and evicting uh, local residents so that they can turn uh, those homes into overnight rentals. Uh, the word I have is that there are over 400 homes that are now on the overnight rental market, and this one corporation uh, is in control of 100 of them. The fallout from this mass eviction of locals is that local business owners are having a much more difficult time hiring and retaining entry-level employees because they have nowhere to live. This is a very, uh, a very challenging situation. What can you three of you tell us about this and what the Grassroots Institute is doing? Well, I'll tell you, and, and I want to mention uh, one other thing first, that we're very happy to be here on Mind, Body, and Health because one of our goals is to encourage people, to empower people to be part of the democratic process. And we think that's very important for your mind, body, and health. <laughs> that, that really <laughs> makes your mind, body, and health really thrive to be engaged in the democratic process. So, Richard, it's, it's great you have this program and uh, wonderful to be on the program. You know, that, that we do have a group looking at affordable housing. They've looked a little bit at um, uh, what to do about VRBOs and, you know, vacation rentals. Uh, the city of Fort Bragg is, is more involved in that. There's a, a group called the uh, Housing Action Team, and there's a group that's uh, in this, the city is setting up to create what's called community and land trust to create a long-term affordable housing. We are kind of on the fringes of that, um, that work. We're just coming into it, um, but there are people working on it and it's a humongous problem. I had not heard about the corporation that you're talking about. A lot of that was new information for me. Um, and I can see it's, it's something that needs to be researched and, and uh, dealt with. Again, Jim, just to repeat myself, I've been told that this one corporation controls, already controls 25% of the overnight housing uh, here on the coast. And the name of the corporation is Picasa. We can check them out on Google. Uh, Carrie and, uh, and Peter, uh, anything to add on the housing issue or should we move on? We can move on. Well, well I'd like to add just a few thoughts. Okay. if I could. Please. Um, and and that, that is... As you, as you say, it is a huge problem. Housing uh, has become unaffordable um, for most uh, working class and uh, lower working class families. And yet we have a, an economy on the coast in particular uh, that requires a lot of uh, those kinds of workers to support the hospitality and tourist industry. 
so it, it means that we do have a, a significant crisis in our community. We can't afford uh, to lose uh, affordable housing uh, in the community. So we do have to address that. And, and as Jim uh, pointed out, a, a work group uh, within the Grassroots Institute uh, has been created to start looking at uh, affordable housing and how land trusts might be utilized. I would also say that there's another component to this, which is the community's uh, self-determination ability. Uh, when large corporations uh, come in and uh, change the fundamental economics of housing in a community, the, the community loses control over its own destiny. Uh, and one of the things that's at the, at the bedrock, uh, uh, the core of the Grassroots Institute is that we do work that's defined and driven by the participants uh, in the work. They educate themselves first about what the community is experiencing and what kinds of solutions might make sense. And then they bring those solutions to the community through outreach and in public education, through programs like this one, uh, through the press, through letters to the editor, by holding meetings, um, gatherings, by petitioning uh, public officials, uh, and by uh, reaching out to the business community to uh, implement pragmatic, uh, common sense solutions that benefit the community. And I think housing um, is one of those that's long been neglected here on the coast, and it really is becoming uh, more and more uh, a problem that people are recognizing. We hear all the time from many of the young people who are participating in Grassroots Institute, that they're finding a very difficult time to be able to afford housing to live on the coast. And we can't afford to lose the young people. It can't just be us old folks hanging out here in retirement. It's gotta be for everybody on the coast. So this is a really critical issue. And I'm very happy and proud that, that uh, the Institute has, has created a work group to start addressing it. Let's move on to something called the Jackson State Forest. One of you, please tell us, what is the Jackson State Forest? What does it stand for? And what is the threat to the forest? Okay, well, I, I can uh, help address that. I live in Casper, and of course, Jackson State Forest is the, uh, the timberlands of the Casper Lumber Company. The Casper Lumber Company uh, was formed in the 1860s. Uh, it was a big competitor against uh, Union, the Union Lumber Company in Fort Bragg. There are lots of stories of them uh, collecting the scripts from the other person's company and then <laughs> dumping, them, dumping it in their store, uh, creating all kinds of chaos. But um, so that's what Jack, in, I guess it was in 1955 when the mill closed here in Casper. Instead, you know, the logical thing would have been for Casper Lumber Company to sell all their timber, which goes from here to Willits. It's essentially all the land between uh, Casper and Willits they, to sell all that land to the Union Lumber Company. Well, they were not going to do that. So they uh, made a sweetheart deal with the state and gave it to the state as the largest state forest um, in California. And they did it. You know, these were loggers and they were setting up what they called a demonstration forest to uh, demonstrate different logging practice. Well, well, they've been doing that for 40 or 50 years, uh, now 60 years, and um, they've kind of studied it to death. It's, Casper Creek is one of the most steady uh, watersheds in the country. And uh, now they're, of course, still doing logging because they have to do logging to do what they're supposed to do. But the logging is cutting down the old trees that are sequestering carbon. And now this, here's the state of California has this huge program to uh, sequester carbon. And at the same time, they're cutting down these trees. So but Jim, Jim, please just take a, 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 a second. H how does this company uh, get to do logging on property that you told us they gave to the state? Well, it's not the Casper Lumber Company that's doing the property. Like Casper Lumber Company's out of business, but they gave it to the state, but the state mandate was to log the land. So they um, you know, lease, lease out or have different contracts with uh, different logging companies around uh, Mendocino to uh, harvest the trees every you know, 10 or 20 years. So and you're saying the state of California is in the logging business itself? 
Absolutely. It's in the logging business itself. It's what has uh, supported uh, a lot of Cal Fire and a, a lot of uh, California Board of Forestry. Has so, it, so if the if the Grassroots Institute is working to protect this forest, they're working against the interests of the state of California that wants to use this forest to produce something for material benefit. Well, the project, and it's not just the Grassroots Institute, it's the Mendocino Trail Stewards, it's all the people that have been doing trail sets, it's a big coalition of groups that are, that are involved in this. Um, and the idea is just to change the policy, change the, point out to the state that there's a, a contradiction here in what they're trying to do, that they uh, should halt all logging operations and use it to sequester carbon. They don't even se consider sequestering carbon. I know, you know, there are big sustainable lumber companies here, the um, Conservation Fund and the, and Rafi, the Redwood Forest Foundation, both are, are doing sustainable forestry where they do some harvesting, but their main purpose is to sequester carbon and they sell carbon credits. Well, the state doesn't even consider sequestering carbon. It's not on their list of something they should be doing. Whereas, you know, everybody else is doing it. Why aren't they doing it? Uh, this business of selling carbon credits is, is, a, is an anathema to me. I mean, it's, a, it's sort of like you, you, you can't commit a felony here, but if you go over there where they have fewer felonies, well, then we can buy some uh, felony allowance and we can commit a couple of crimes over here and it'll end up in a balance. I, I don't get that whole thing whatsoever. That seems like a pretty clever thing that some corporations snuck through in some way. That, well, uh, well, it, it's a large degree. You know, it's like the whole uh, selling, uh, creating carbon markets for, for fossil fuels. It is a, a, a Wall Street scam, but the the part about sequestering carbon is is still important, whether you're selling it or not. And the state, I don't think, would ever sell their carbon credits, but they should at least be sequestering all the carbon they can. They've got these big forests to sequester the carbon in. Carrie, Peter, do you want to say anything about the Jackson Forest before we move on? Just a couple of things, but Carrie, go ahead. Um, I think. The, the thing that I've been uh, that I've understood is that what the protesters are really trying to do is have a voice at the table so that so that this contradiction can be dealt with in a reasonable way. OK, I, yeah. I think that what, what we're seeing uh, in the first of all, the, the Jackson demonstration state force is the, the full title. And the demonstration part is that uh, decades ago, uh, when the state created the state forest there, uh, it was determined at the time, and this was decades ago, that uh, California didn't want to eliminate logging. Uh, it just wanted to move towards sustainable logging. And so the demonstration forests were set up with the idea that they would uh, use those forests as a way to uh, research uh, and uh, identify ways to cut timber sustainably and to maintain healthy forests. But what's changed since that time is the climate crisis. Uh, and uh, what, what, when we bring in to that equation, the uh, ability of redwood trees to sequester carbon and particularly 100-year-old redwood trees, trees that are starting to hit their, uh, leaving their adolescence and becoming more mature trees, they suddenly start sequestering massive amounts of carbon uh, in, in much larger amounts than, uh, than smaller trees do. So there's a, there's a cross current here. There's a conflict. Um, it's, it's more productive and it's more profitable to harvest younger trees um, and then have new trees grow in behind them. But for carbon sequestration purposes, for the purposes of cleaning our atmosphere, it's much more beneficial to the public uh, to uh, leave the trees where they're at and uh, allow them to continue to grab carbon out of the atmosphere and to clean our air. And so the state has a problem. And what, what we're talking about here is that things have changed, but the policies that the state has adopted in the past haven't evolved as fast as
climate change is pursuing them. We, we know that climate change is accelerating um, uh, the uh, harmful impacts on habitat everywhere. And the public sector hasn't been changing its policies fast enough. So what's at stake here is an attempt to try to educate the public through broad public action and awareness to the, to the fact that there has been a change in what we really need from our forests. We need forests to sequester carbon a lot more than we need forests to generate redwood trees, to harvest and to build houses out of, for example, or buildings out of. So uh, that's what really is at the core is to, to educate the public in California to move towards what public officials have been talking about increasingly, which is to uh, sequester carbon uh, using our forests uh, and not use them simply as a way to harvest timber so that we can build more houses or whatever. There are other materials besides redwood trees that can be used to build houses. And, and so it's really their highest and best use. And that's what the struggle is all about there. It's finding that sweet spot, that place which makes sense. Now, a lot of what we're talking about today in terms of maintaining quality of life, as Jim said, ensuring our mind, body, our health, as well as our politics, depends on who we elect to office. And to remind ourselves that we, the people, select who it is to govern with us, not to govern over us. And we have elections coming up in November uh, here on the coast at the city council level. And we also have elections coming up uh, for the board of supervisors uh, whose home is in Ukiah uh, in Mendocino County. Uh, please, what can you tell us about what the GRI, the Grassroots Institute is doing with regard to these upcoming elections? I'll jump in on this one because it's the one that I've been working a little bit on more than I believe uh, Jim and Carrie. Uh, we have a, a work group of people who've come together and who recognize exactly what you're talking about, Richard, that, uh, that the elections that are coming up in June and November of this year will be very critical elections. Let's, let's just talk a little bit about the city of Fort Bragg, for example. We have four seats on a five-seat city council that'll be filled at the November uh, 2022 election, and it will determine the majority and the philosophy of the city. Now, we're right in the middle of this controversy that has to do with how these headlands are going to be utilized in this, in this corporation. Um, uh, it wants to uh, uh, pursue its vision of uh, how that land should be developed while the community um, is not uh, being part of that decision-making process, doesn't have a seat at the table. So the city council really is the entity that intervenes on behalf of the public in this case. And so we've already started reaching out to people in the community, making them aware of how important this upcoming election is. We're, we're very concerned for example, we've seen examples of corporations using their wealth to unduly influence the election outcomes um, in critical uh, elections where they want to exploit uh, communities. And we're concerned that that might happen in Fort Bragg as well. So we're, we're already looking, contacting people in the community, trying to raise awareness and encouraging people to step forward as potential candidates for that city council election. What we hope to do is to hold forums, for example, to demystify the process of being a candidate for the city council to help people figure out how to put their campaigns together, how to raise money to finance those campaigns, how to make sure that the public generates the outcome for next November based on an informed and understanding of the kinds of critical issues that face the city of Fort Bragg. And it's not just the development of the land on the headlands. We also are going to continue to face water problems um, in, up, in the upcoming years from uh, a drought that's persistent and, and certainly inflicted uh, a lot of economic harm this past summer and is liable to happen again next summer. We have uh, issues relative to uh, how do we maintain 
uh, our uh, energy stability uh, in, a, in a time when PG&E has re repeatedly failed to maintain its grid effectively. And so we, we're, we want to see people uh, putting that on the agenda. And we've been doing that. As Kerry talked about uh, six months ago, we approached the uh, city of Fort Bragg uh, and asked them to start putting solar on all the city's buildings. We, we still haven't seen any action in that direction. So there are, there are a whole host of issues for the upcoming Fort Bragg city elections. And, and in addition, we have countywide elections. Uh, we have a sheriff, a district attorney, um, two supervisors who are gonna be elected. And uh, we've had great success with uh, Supervisor Jurdy and Ted Williams, Supervisor Williams and uh, uh, Supervisor Haschek in terms of getting them to address uh, climate change issues. We hope to continue to work with them on a whole host of issues, including housing um, uh, in the uh, next year. So these are all areas that uh, the public is increasingly becoming aware of, and we're going to be actively trying to organize people to get involved in that process. Peter, what can you tell us, if anything, about how long a citizen must reside in the city of Fort Bragg prior to the election in order to be eligible to uh, sit on the city council? Well, uh, to my knowledge, there is no residency requirement to be a candidate uh, for uh, the city council. You simply have to be a, a, a registered voter, a citizen, uh, and, uh, and uh, apply through the uh, candidate process to be on the ballot, um, that process uh, will uh, involve uh, taking out nomination petitions or filing uh, nomination papers uh, sometime in June or July. I'm not sure what the exact schedule is. The city clerk will be putting that schedule out in the near future, and uh, we would hope to pass that on to the to potential candidates as well. So there's no, no, let me see if I, do I understand you to be saying you do not have to be a resident of the city to run for the city council? Am I, did I hear that right? No, no, I, I you have to be a resident, but there's no time requirement. So you so, literally, uh, you literally could move in the day before and, uh, and run for city council. If you moved in the day that you filed your nomination papers with the city clerk? Nom nomination papers. Fair. I think that's very important for people to know, and I hope the GRI gets that word out. Okay, let's. we're going to move on to a, a very important uh, topic. It's going to be our last topic, really, of the day, and that has to do with um, the GRI's infrastructure, decision-making, and most importantly, fundraising. What can you tell us about this most important topic? Because in order for the GRI to stay in existence, it must raise funds for its existence because there are expenses. That's right. And, and all, all three of us, Richard, are involved here in what we call the, the GRI infrastructure work group. And uh, we've really never had any formal uh, infrastructure. We've had Carrie and I have been the main staff people. We have our, our board that has been advisors to us. But now we've discovered that we have, there are a lot of projects we'd like to be doing, but we can't do them because we don't have enough time and energy. So we want to hire people, hire some staff, and uh, get more people involved in the Grassroots Institute. And on that note, I want to point out that people can go to our website at grassroots-institute.org to see our website. And uh, Grassroots Institute is open to participation by everybody. So um, go to our website. You can contact me at, at, at my email address at rtp at mcn.org. Repeat that, please, Jim. rtp at mcn.org. rtp at mcn.org. And okay. I want to tell the folks listening and reading this that Grassroots Institute, grassroots is one word, not two. It's Grassroots Institute. That's right. That's right. And the website, the website is grassroots-institute.org. Ah, thank you, Carrie. Grassroots-institute.org. And what can you tell us about how people listening or reading this 
might uh, send in funds? Is that available uh, information on the website or what should they do if they want to send in a few bucks? Well, uh, part of our infrastructure is in fact to kind of reformat our website. We really haven't, haven't made it as functional as it should be. And, uh, and that's one of our projects. And to, and to start a whole, we've never really done a fundraising campaign. <laughs> we really just kind of, the participants when we've needed money, have, uh, we've put it out there and people have ponied up a little money, but it, nobody's ever been paid. It, so we're moving into a whole new stage. And, uh, and that's one of our things. And Peter, who's done this quite a bit, uh, has been kind of at the forefront of our restructuring and, and really um, show, uh, coming up or helping us come up with a model of how we want to operate. So I don't know, Peter, do you want to talk more about that? A little bit. Um, first of all, I'd say uh, that any community-based organization always faces the challenge of how do you bring people into the organization successfully and, um, and how do you finance the activities that your organization attempts to undertake? And the Grassroots Institute is a particularly unique and wonderful organization because as we've mentioned before, it's driven by the activities and the interests of its participants. And so what we periodically do is have general sessions uh, where we invite people from the community to come together uh, and they identify the problems that they want to, to work on for the next few months, maybe six months, maybe a year. Um, as, as we've talked about right now, uh, the Institute has eight uh, different work groups that are, are, are working on various issues. And each of those work groups, some, some of them contain participants that are in uh, more than one uh, work group, uh, but many are just uh, uh, work groups that are standalone operations. So the institute itself is a is a host. It, it, it's not a an ideological organization. For example, uh, it doesn't have a, a, a mantra or a particular uh, agenda that it's pursuing. It simply opens itself up to the community, and the participants in the com of these work groups are from the community. They define the problems that they want to work on. And we don't want to lose that as we grow and, and develop an infrastructure. So what we're, what we're attempting to do is to retain the work group structure of the Grassroots Institute and at the same time build an infrastructure that allows us to develop a, a contact system so that we can email information out to the public, uh, a media program uh, so that we can publish newsletters, and inform the public and build public awareness, uh, an ability to, uh, to, uh, to, to hold public forums and discussions, uh, to uh, undertake uh, projects that, that, for example, one of our, our work groups is, is working on water issues and they're very interested in catchment systems. So, they, so as an organization, that work group might want to develop uh, model catchment, rainwater catchment systems uh, and educate the public about them. We've, we've worked on issues about co-ops in the past. Uh, and so what, we've, what we found was uh, as we've had successes, uh, lots of people have been coming to us in the last year in particular and saying, can you folks work on this and can you work on that? And what we tell them is there are no folks here that work on things. You're the people who do the work. We help you do that work. The fundraising arm of that is, fortunately, we are affiliated with the Alliance uh, for Democracy, which is a 501c nonprofit organization. And so contributions to uh, the Grassroots Institute um, are, uh, are tax deductible. Uh, so we can collect uh, donations in that way. Uh, people who want to make in-kind contributions of their time and energy are certainly welcome. And everyone who wants to make a contribution towards furthering the development of this kind of an organization in our community, which, which I like to call, it's kind of an incubator or a catalyst. Um, we grow resident action. I, I like to say it that way. We, we, the people in this community are empowered uh, and we have an institution they can plug into to manifest the direction they want to take the community in. And so uh, we, we do, we're do, we are starting this process 
of reaching out to the community and asking them to help finance a structure that enables the community to, to have this kind of institution available to it. Would you be comfortable being referred to as a local citizens action group? I, I only, I, I have to say personally, I don't like to limit us to citizens. Ah. We have a lot of residents in Mendocino County who aren't necessarily U.S. citizens, and we welcome everybody who resides in Mendocino to participate in a grassroots institute. So, you know, you can say it any way you want, but... No, point well taken. It's a local residence action group, and I thank you all very much. Uh, Peter McNamee, Carrie Durkee, Jim Tarbell, for bringing this very important information about the Grassroots Institute. That's grassroots-institute.org. Go to your Google, look it up, and get involved. Thank you all for participating in today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Please check in with us again next Tuesday at 9 o'clock in the morning, Pacific Standard Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that quality of life and good health are essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm-hmm.